2: You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
3: Well, today our show is about the practices of the credit reporting industry with regard to identity theft victims, and we have two guests who happen to be my friends who I really honor and respect, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, but this is with regard to the lawsuit called Drew versus Equifax, and we're going to learn about what These companies, these credit reporting agencies should be doing and the creditor should be doing and what happens to identity theft victims and we have an incredible story that you may have seen already on TV. My guests are Eric Drew and also John Keating who's an attorney, his attorney in this case. Let me tell you first about Eric I have met Eric uh, several years ago. In fact, we were on Montel Williams together when Montel Williams called and said, do you have a, a wonderful, articulate, gorgeous victim? I said, I have one for you. And we went together to New York and we were on the show. And let me tell you a little bit about him. Eric Drew is a nationally recognized former identity theft victim and cancer survivor. He's also a motivational keynote speaker and chairman of a medical foundation He's been featured on many TV and radio shows, including CNN, NPR, Montel, Dateline, NBC, Geraldo, The Big Idea with Danny Douche, and also ABC, CBC, CNBC, Fox News, and more. And his story was also featured in Discover Magazine. He had a miraculous survival from terminal leukemia at the same time, he also, unfortunately, was a victim of identity theft. And he also was the first to catch his, his thief and prosecute him um, under the federal HIPAA statutes, which was an incredible, the first one that was ever done. And he worked so hard on this while he was trying to recover and trying to maintain a relationship before his marriage. Eric is now a leading consumer advocate against the growing tide of identity theft and for the legislative and institutional credit industry changes needed to stop this criminal epidemic. And he also is a very, very strong um, advocate for helping victims of cancer in his medical foundation. Through his foundation formed in his namesake, he is working to assist seriously ill patients and their families in need And you can learn a lot more about Eric and the wonderful work that he's doing in the Medical Foundation and watch, actually, the TV features on his fight against identity theft at drewfoundation.org. That's D-R-E-W, foundation.org. We also have with us his wonderful attorney who has been a real champion. Both of them are champions, actually. John Keating is a civil rights and consumer law lawyer. With offices in Woodside, California, which is just south of San Francisco in the Silicon Valley. John's primary consumer law experience over the last 20 years has been representation of small businesses and individual policyholders in insurance coverage disputes. But he has done much more. And in fact, in the government, he's also dealt with government conduct and civil rights areas. John has been involved in the litigation of a series of cases concerning politically motivated uh, prosecutions, and one case involved the abuses of a private intelligence gathering organization that worked in cooperation with the government to keep a secret database of information of which the accuracy could not even be verified. He's also dealt in representing victims of sexual harassment, um, also disability, and all sorts of Title VII cases. And uh, he's also been involved in um, representation to represent and protect individuals against post 9 11 false accusations of terrorist affiliations. And then over the past several years, John has been litigating the Drew versus Equifax matter, which focused on the practices of the credit reporting industry and all of the failures that came out in responding to consumer requests and identity theft victim requests to correct credit reports. And so this was such an important case. And we've had Eric on before, and he is just wonderful, and John is terrific. So we thought we'd have a dog and pony show with both of them on. So they're both in two different places, but we are thrilled. Thank you so much, both Eric and John, for joining us.
0: You're very welcome, Mari. It's a pleasure to be here. thank Thank you for including us.
3: Okay, so let's start out with Eric, and let's tell our audience exactly what happened to you.
0: Well, it's a, it's a long story, but in a nutshell, I was uh, basically sent home to die with a terminal leukemia, and uh, luckily through my half-sister, who I'd only met a couple of years before, uh, found a, a couple of experimental treatments going on at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center in Seattle, and uh, went up there and was was undergoing uh, experimental bone marrow transplants to see if there was something that we could do to try to save my life. My arrival in Seattle, I started to get these funny notices. I I had cleaned up my my financial uh, accounts and things like that and closed most of my credit cards and everything. And so when I started getting these thank you notices, thanking me for uh, for, uh, applying for all this new credit, I thought it was very strange. And I, I thought it was an accounting error or maybe a solicitation. So I didn't think too much of it until I started getting phone calls from... Uh, you know, from people demanding payments on thousands of dollars of accounts that I hadn't set up. And at that point, I knew it was identity theft. And not only that, I knew it was somebody uh, that was inter-affiliated with the hospital because I had really no other business in Seattle besides with uh, the medical facility. I, uh, I was, I mean, I, I cannot tell you how disturbing, how frightening and scary and, and, and angry I was um, you know, knowing that somebody who was in, you know, I was, I was in essence dying here in this hospital and, and being given no prognosis at the time, the treatments were failing. And uh, somebody in that hospital, knowing that I had, you know, at that point, zero chance of survival, said, well, he's not going to need his identity. We'll just take it and, and go on a shopping spree. And so they set up uh, four or five credit cards. I mean, these banks uh, issued this guy credit without verifying the application whatsoever, uh, there was, uh, uh, like I said, they, in, in after he set up the first card, then they solicited him with three or four more cards uh, from different banks and doing absolutely no background check or verification. As a matter of fact, there was no application. He simply called and said, I'm Eric Drew. This is my date of birth and Social Security number. And they sent a credit card to an address in a state I never lived in, an address I never lived at.
3: Yeah. Eric, I, I want people to know in 2003, 2004, how old you were. You're not, you weren't an old man at all. You're a young guy
0: just turned 36
3: and, and tell us you know I I know that you were able to find out who that person was why don't you tell us how you did that and what they found out
0: well I guess more just as important is how I did it is why I mean you think about it you're in a hospital you're you're fighting for your life a hospital worker is stealing your identity. You know it, but nobody believes me. Nobody believed that, that it could be a hospital worker. I, you know, I was screaming bloody murder to the doctors and the staff and the hospital administration and the police and the FBI and the federal postal inspectors. And everybody just looked at me and said, you know, this guy's kind of a crazy dying cancer patient. He's on a lot of drugs. You know, we just got to ignore him. So I, I, it, it became a life and death struggle for me because I thought that once this person or, or these people, if it was a ring of people that were doing this to patients, found out that I was on to them, that they would slip something in my IV at night, and I would, you know, I'd be done. Exactly. So uh, I, I thought, you know, I've got to leave this hospital, even though I was basically on life support. I had no immune system. I had no, uh, I couldn't manufacture my own blood. I needed constant infusions, and but you know, I did. I left. I got a backpack pumping all the stuff into me to keep me alive, and went out, and, and uh, it wasn't rocket science. You know, I did a tri-merge on my credit report. I, got, I found out what addresses were being used. I, I went to the address and banged around the house and, and uh, uh, finally figured out, well, hey, wait a minute. The mail that's coming to this house, the criminal's house, is my mail. It's in my name. So I filled out a change of address, which forwarded all the criminal's mail to me. And then I knew where he was shopping and what he was buying, and I interviewed the shopkeepers, and they said, oh, yeah, Eric Drew, about this tall, you know, wearing hospital scrubs. And I knew I was on to something. So it was finally um, uh, an NBC reporter that that came up and talked to me in the hospital. You know, he sort of gave me credibility by putting the story in the news, and and very shortly we were able to isolate a video of the man making purchases in my name at a Lowe's Home Improvement Mm -hmm. Store and uh... within uh... you know by the next day after airing the the video of this man on the on the news you know thirty people had called in and identified him as uh... richard gibson who worked at the uh... seattle cancer care alliance um and was you know directly affiliated with my care so it was uh... You know, it was a it was a big it was a big catch
3: and so then what did law enforcement do with him
0: well basically nothing they uh... he went he waited he went on the run for about three days and they he turned himself into law enforcement with a lawyer And at that point, they had no case and no evidence because they never came and got it from me. They never even really took a statement from me. So, um, uh, you know, they let him go right away. I mean, I think he spent a night in jail and they let him go. So I I called the Washington, the the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., and said, hey, this is, you know, this is a a federal issue. This is an inner-city, interstate, interjurisdictional crime. It's a federal crime. And, uh, you know, every time I walk into the hospital, I'm signing HIPAA, this patient privacy, this patient privacy, that, and I demand he be prosecuted under this federal HIPAA law. Right. Um, unfortunately, they hadn't prosecuted anybody under that law. And so they said, well, we can't do that. It's not meant for prosecuting individuals. It's sort of meant as a, as a guideline or bureaucracy so it's for, uh, for hospitals and insurance companies. And, um, you know, it really wasn't written to prosecute individuals. There's really no teeth in it for doing that. And, um. Uh, in essence, I said, well, you know, I mean, let's offer the guy a plea, uh, let him go of all these other federal crimes, forgery, identity theft, you know, mail fraud, everything else, and give him a slap on the wrist. If he just pleads guilty to HIPAAs, we can get the first first conviction.
3: So actually he was never convicted of of identity theft in the state that he lived in?
0: He never- no, you know, I tried to pursue it. Uh, Chief, at that point, Chief Gorlikowski, uh, Mr. Gorlikowski is now um uh working for the for in Washington DC for the federal government but at that point I, I tried to convince him that even though the federal government had prosecuted this gentleman under uh under the federal HIPAA law and he did a, he did a year in federal prison for it uh and, and had to pay some fines and things like that that they should pursue prosecution of uh, in the state and the city of Seattle for the identity theft crimes but right. they they refused to do so right
3: but the, but thank God you survived. How did you do that? I mean, especially maybe maybe all this just really was such of a, a motivation, and you were guided to do all this to help so many other victims. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean,
0: what it did was is it is it really underscored the knowledge that I had prior to to even my diagnosis that if I if I stay focused on what my goal is, and, and I don't let anything. Steer me away from focusing on on what that goal is. I know that I can, that anything can be done. Miracles can be done. People can accomplish things that are just amazing if they set their mind to it. And everybody told me there was nothing I could do about the identity theft. Just let it go. You know, you're, you're, you, it's the last thing you should be worried about. You know, you should be fighting for your life. Well, it was a life or death fight for me. So once I caught the guy and turned the case over to the FBI. You know, I was basically told again uh, that there was nothing else that could be done for me. That the treatments that that they had tried had failed. The disease was back. The leukemia was back, and that I had a very short time to live. Um, and uh, at that point, I, I said, "Look, I'm 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 done." I had been consulted at almost every major cancer center in in the U.S. either by phone or in person, and uh, spent you know the last 18 months at various hospitals throughout the West Coast, and and um, including Stanford and in Seattle, and, and so I started looking uh, in Europe and Asia for other uh, technologies that, that, might, um, that might save my life. And it was a, a very short conversation with a Swiss doctor, and he said, You know, bone marrow is simply a source of stem cells, and because you don't have a good match for bone marrow because you have no full siblings, you just need another source of stem cells. And so I started learning that stem cells were not controversial at all it's only embryonic stem cells, which actually aren't being used for anything at this point, but that we have a huge source of stem cells that we're throwing away every day in umbilical cord blood.
1: Right.
0: Uh, so I, I started looking around at what options were there. And uh, you know, a year ago, I had looked into it, and I was told that it only worked on children and not adults. And he says, no, 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 I'm sorry to say, but Europe, you know, we're a decade ahead of you in this technology that we figured out a long time ago that, that in order to transplant adult with the umbilical cord blood from a newborn baby is is to use multiple umbilical cords because an adult body is too big for just one. you needed more volume
1: oh, and so
0: I, I I frantically looked around for clinical trials going on in the us. I found one that they were just starting in Minnesota, flew back there, met with the doctors and and uh, decided that I could either die slowly over a year and a half or I could die very quickly, probably doing this. <laughs> very aggressive treatment uh but that if i did make it through the treatment i would have the best chance of a long-term life afterwards and uh, amazingly enough obviously it worked and uh, i now have the blood of a, of a baby girl from italy is where we got the stem cells
3: wow do you speak italian now because of that
0: <laughs> <laughs> i sure love italian food
3: That's what it did to you. I'm in touch
0: with my feminine side.
3: Right. (laughs) What a a wonderful miracle that is. And I know you're working so hard in your foundation to help other people who are...
0: Yeah, you know, the foundation is not about leukemia and it's not about disease, really. It's about the patient. And, uh, you know, we're here to help patients that are struggling with any kind of serious or terminal illness because it's really about strategy. It's about self-empowerment. It's about giving people hope that our medical system that is not set up necessarily to treat people, but to make profit first and foremost, uh robs people of hope so often. And um and people need to know that there's always something that can be done, that what they hear even from the best and largest medical institution may not be the ultimate truth and that um and that it's up to them to to, to find and locate and decide what's best for them.
3: And you know, I'll tell you, we honor you so much, Eric, for being if we're talking about uh self empowerment and actually being the inspiration of self-empowerment to not be a victim to go beyond victimization whether it's medical victim it, victimization or identity theft victimization you are truly a victor and we are so thrilled for you and i know that you were even able to get your life together and move on and how are you feeling now
0: well i'm doing pretty good a uh, medical update really is uh i'm a hundred percent in remission i mean the leukemia is gone i do have you know, female blood from a you know that's it's now a little over six years old. So I'm doing great there. Um, unfortunately, the prednisone is a drug that's that's used so widely and and in you know so heavily. And that was a drug that was was used a lot during my treatment. And unfortunately, it's caused a lot of damage to my body. All the bones in my legs are dying, and so I have to have all the joints replaced. But because of the the damage to the immune system that prednisone does uh, there were infections so they had to take some of the prosthetic joints out um, you know I haven't really been able to use my legs for a couple of years but I'm going in for reconstructive surgery uh, in a couple of weeks and hopefully after three or four of those I'll be able to walk again um, had to have my gallbladder removed and I had such bad cataracts from the prednisone as well that, mm-hmm. that uh, you know they had to replace the lenses in my eyes but really I'm I, I think I finally gone from, you know, a point of degradation of getting worse over a period of, of years to now turning the corner and, and, and on my way on the upswing.
3: So and, that's and great I news. have every bit of faith in you that you're going to overcome this, too. You're you're gorgeous inside and out. And I know you're going to come through. And this is great.
0: Well, thank you, Mari. I really appreciate, appreciate your kind words.
3: And, you know, John has been a, a real champion for you as well. Not only have you overcome the the identity theft and you've overcome this leukemia but now you also have overcome some things within the the whole legal system john- yeah well john
0: uh john keating is is my atticus finch he's uh um, you know i i call him that all the time i mean he's uh he's a he's a person that is willing to dedicate his life to a cause that that you know almost seems insurmountable but but he knows that it's right and it's just and we've We've latched on to that cause like pit bulls, and, and we're not letting go.
3: And and that's wonderful. You found a, a, a real partner in crime, so to speak. But, okay, so, John, let's talk about this lawsuit, and what was the basis for the lawsuit, and let's kind of go through that so that my audience understands what happened.
2: Yeah. Well, let me say that uh, Eric Drew is uh, one of the strongest, toughest guys I've met. Um, I wouldn't have done this if he weren't so darn inspirational. Yeah. Uh, And most uh, inspirational is his tenacity in uh, thinking he can take on the system.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And he found the right uh, knight in shining armor to do it.
2: Yeah, well, we got kind of a miracle in uh, one little blow against the Empire in that regard. But, um, you know, it shouldn't be so tough to achieve a miracle. No, it shouldn't take a miracle, and it shouldn't have to take such toll on the person like Eric. So, um,
3: so let's talk about purposes. yeah, let's um, talk what? about the, the the basis for the lawsuit so that my audience understands exactly what happened. You sued Equifax, let's and let's just kind of go through that whole kind of understanding of that.
2: Okay, well, there's three basic problems we addressed, as everyone knows the banking industry has been issuing many, many credit cards that they should be issuing. And they do it in a reckless manner. Um, And we were trying to address that circumstance that a bank would get an application for someone like Eric Drew with a changed address an address that doesn't match what's on the credit reports on all the other credit history that they have for Eric even on doesn't even match the address on cards that the bank itself was issuing
1: to right mhm
2: so they go and they issue a card that even they thought was probably fraudulent and then they report that to the credit bureau and then the credit bar- bureau distributes the false address and other banks send solicitations out to the thief and the thief's able to get many many more credit cards and as as you've mentioned before what these thieves do is they use the second credit card to pay the minimum balance on the first right and it goes on and snowballing and snowballing and some people have this problem going on for 10 years before the thief happens to Foul up, and make a mistake, and not get the minimum balances paid, or if the person checks a credit file. Right. So we wanted to tackle that problem, um, to try to enforce the law that requires the banks, when they have some red flags or evidence in front of them that's a fraudulent account, to actually investigate further and to check in with the, uh, the true consumer to make sure that they want the card.
3: Yeah, and it doesn't take much. You know, I mean, this is the thing that I had talked about back in 1996 when I myself was a victim. You know, they were the same thing happened to me as happened to Erica. they thank God I, you know, I didn't experience all the other things that he was experiencing his life, experience in health. But, you know, it happens to so many victims that somebody gets your information either at the hospital or your doctor's office or your bank or somewhere else and then they apply for credit in your name and the creditor does you know gets the the credit report doesn't even care that the address is different they haven't even looked at that and then they issue credit and then everybody else sees the new address which is the fraudulent address and just goes ahead and issues more credit and more credit and loans or mortgages or whatever else that's going on
0: you know the fundamental the fundamental problem here if i may is the is the attempt of the credit industry to automate not only the credit reporting industry, but the credit, you know, issuance. And I mean, you can you, you see the results of this. You're walking through a line at Target or whatever, and they say you want to apply for a credit card right here and now. We'll give you one as you walk through the line. And and not only is this belligerent, but it you know it's harmful to the American public. It's you know the American the American public is already you know so far in debt and enslaved to the banking industry. That is, you know, obviously the banking industry, you can see what they've done, you know, over the last few years with our economy. And so the, this automation of these, these companies that, that I challenge the legality, the constitutional right to exist, to keep files on us that, that without our permission, that we cannot opt out of the system. We cannot say Equifax, TransUnion, Experian, we don't want you to keep files. I don't want your automated, you know, immediate credit. And, and uh, you know, I don't want you to keep files on me that I don't get to look at. Um, I mean, it's just amazing what these people are doing and, and, that, and that we haven't as a society looked at this and said, where is this going to have private corporations keeping extensive files on us mm-hmm. and, and that we're not really privy to, that we have to pay them to even glimpse at. You know? It's just wrong.
3: Yeah. And, and, it's, and it gets worse. It gets worse. So, you so know, to, yeah.
2: I agree. This is John, and I agree with what Eric said about the problems with automation. And that's, unfortunately, where society has gone in so many ways. But there's another problem. There's, you know, the people like you who are experts in this and work so hard to get decent legislation through, you achieved a great success, and you got legislation through. But the problem is that it's not enforced.
3: And, and you know, that I was just going to bring that up, you know, back in uh, when Eric became a victim, what was that, two thousand three,
0: two thousand four? Is that right, Eric? That's that's correct. Yeah. That, okay, well just sto- my identity was stolen in two thousand three, but you know, I I, I was
3: going aware through of it, it. And,
0: and went after the guy in, in early two thousand four.
3: Yeah, and, and I testified, you know, and I and I helped with the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, which was signed in two thousand three, which actually had incorporated what they called red flag rules. And the red flag rules were basically to state that if you're a creditor or a credit reporting agency and you see something suspicious, that's a red flag, you should investigate it. Well, we didn't even get an agreement by everybody who was in all the stakeholders until 2008 with regard to the red flag rules, which is things like you were talking about, Eric, where your address was not the same address that was on the applications and then – you know, still, the creditors issued the account, even though the address was different from your real address.
0: Not a, yeah, in a different state than I've and ever yeah, lived yeah, in. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, and that happens to a lot of victims. Well, the red flag rules say, and they were they were already totally, you know, in effect, basically, in 2003. They said to look for those, and then finally, they finalized in 2008, and believe it or not, to date, until the end of 2010, they won't be enforced, They won't be enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. So what you're saying is exactly right. They're not being held accountable, and that's what's wrong. But you, in your lawsuit, you were trying to hold them accountable. So let's talk again, John, about what happened in this lawsuit and uh, tell us the good news.
2: Well, we tried to challenge three aspects of this big problem. Um, And the three aspects we tried to challenge were the sort of process of negligently issuing cards to thieves. Secondly, then we looked at the process of how does a person correct that problem. When a consumer finds out that fraudulent accounts have been placed on his credit card and more fraudulent accounts might be issued as a result, how does the consumer go and get those bad accounts removed? And there's a process that has been set up Federal law and state law to do that, but it requires the consumer to go through some some uh, uh, leap, some strenuous uh, high hurdles, and he has to make a dispute to the credit agencies, and then the credit agencies have to forward his dispute, the consumer's dispute, to the banks, wait for the banks to get a response and then investigate where that response is correct and then correct the records. Right. So what we try to look at is what do we do about the problem that the credit agencies aren't doing their side of the job of investigating and writing up the dispute and giving it to the banks and then double-checking what the banks say. And secondly, what would we do about the bank side of the problem where well, the banks basically don't need to do a very good job of investigating it. Right. And the banks can get away with it if they don't. There's basically no way to hold them liable for failing to respond except for um, an individual dispute. And they just look at the technical dispute that came from the from the credit agency and give a quick computer response.
0: You know, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, when I was, you know, here I am in the hospital, and I'm calling, you know, every bank involved, every credit reporting agency, and saying, look, I'm in the hospital, I'm fighting for my life, I need your help here, that this address is fraudulent, any credit cards associated with this address are fraudulent, any accounts associated with it, you know, any applications associated with it, any inquiries associated with it. Please take care of this. Oh yeah, we got it taken care of. This and that. Well, I mean, some of these accounts were left uh, were kept open for for you know eight months, and then and then for for two years, they reported me ninety days past due on these accounts. And literally, even after I filled out and even hired a a company to dispute these items, they basically refused to take them off. It was just it was absolutely amazing.
3: Yeah, they were so. totally in violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, without a doubt yeah that's
2: right and what what happens is that the credit agencies basically don't acknowledge a lot of the disputes unless they're presented very well in a certified letter um, and just routinely parrot or adopt exactly what the banks say without doing any independent investigation in and many cases have tried to take on the industry in that regard. Um, And what was different about our case is that we were able to get in evidence that shows that the federal government and the state attorney generals had already tried to prosecute the industry and that the industry agreed to correct a lot of the problems and signed consent decrees um, to, to make changes but didn't make the changes. Mm. So we were able to go to the jury and show that even though they knew there was a problem, even though they knew the system didn't work, even though they had promised to make changes, even though they had been sued a number of times, the defendant we were at trial against, Equifax, intentionally kept the same old policy. Yes failed to do any independent investigation, but instead just parroted whatever the banks told them.
0: You know, it was, if you look at it, you know, what we, we found out in, in this trial, so much information came out, and uh, I really look forward to, to publishing the transcripts from the trial at some point, but the, you know, we found out that, that Equifax has a call center uh, based in Costa Rica. There's 200 people in that call center and for, for 300 million Americans and 11 million victims of identity theft every year, try getting a human being on the phone to deal with your case. Exactly. It is almost impossible. And, and how then long? And they require you. Now, yeah. here's, here's the, the other fundamental problem is, don't we have a legal system in this country that basically you are innocent until proven guilty? But in the credit reporting industry, you are guilty, and you have to prove yourself innocent. In other words, the identity thief can just call and say they're you, and they'll issue him a bunch of credit. But I had to go through and fill out affidavits, provide paperwork, do all these things, jump through all these hurdles in their, according to their uh, procedures that, that are it's, – it's above and beyond what, what any consumer should have to do to clean up the mess that they didn't even create. And, and second of all, here I am in the hospital, and they have no, they have no system for, for uh, dealing with people that are actually unable to maybe jump through all of those hoops.
3: Right, and those people in Costa Rica are probably given a very short period of time in which they're supposed to deal with these disputes, right? Correct. I mean, they have, what, I don't know, two minutes or something to do that?
0: It's, yes, and it's, so they, they basically take your entire dispute. This is what we figured out, and John can elaborate. They take your entire dispute and put it into a three-digit code. Right. And that three-digit code is what is sent off to the bank. Now, if that three-digit code, you know, if I'm going on and on and have this whole, you know, elaborate identity theft story... You know, the person on the line is going, ho-hum, ho-hum, i got to get through this phone call. So they just type in some three-digit code, which is then sent off electronically to the bank, which the bank then responds to electronically, and that is their investigation. And there is no way by any definition of the word investigation in the human language that that qualifies.
3: Right. And, John, you know, when people are told, like, you know, in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you're supposed to write a letter and you're supposed to give an affidavit and you're supposed to provide your police report and you're supposed to be very clear about exactly exactly what happened and what are the accounts, and then they, you know, just turn it into a three-digit code. What does that all, what's that all about, John? It's crazy.
2: It it is crazy, and it doesn't work. Right. And And the letters don't stay in the file, and it's not handled by a department that's designed to do a true investigation and solve the problem. They don't call the consumer up to just find out what it's about. If you that's write a 20-page analysis with documentation, it's going to go into the, into the recycle bin. Right. And it's, you're going to get a three-digit code.
0: You know, that's an amazing and point you just made there, John, and I've been saying this from the very beginning. A 20-second a phone call from any one of these people would have been all it would have taken to, to clean up this entire mess.
2: Say, Mr. So, Drew,
0: what's the problem here? What's going on? Let us take care of that.
2: Right. So, let me tell you how we got around that in this case. Yes. Um, ordinarily, people sue and try to get the credit agencies to comply with a portion of the Fair Credit Reporting Act that requires that the company, the credit agency, do an investigation. And that puts you through that big process of the agency sending notice to the banks, waiting for the banks to respond, and then the agency just parroting whatever the banks say, and everyone says that they're in good faith because they have a basis to rely on the other side. Okay. What we did is we characterized Eric's claim as being about identity theft. Right. And early on, we were able to, and this is what it's important that consumers know, is that when they're dealing with these credit agencies, they can expect a difficult time if they're just disputing an account.
3: Right. It has to be called identity theft if they're a victim. Right.
2: And and not only do you have to call it identity
1: theft. Mm -hmm.
2: And remember, if you call it identity theft, that may not make it into the three-digit code. Right. And you have no way of proving it. So, But what you do is you send them the documentation that they require to comply with not just 1681-I, but with 1681-C2A.
3: Which says, tell my audience what it It says. It
2: says that when the reporting agency gets notice from the consumer that he's a victim, he or she's a victim of identity theft, And if the consumer gives them a driver's license and points out the account and gives them a police report.
3: And an affidavit.
2: And an affidavit. Mm -hmm. And says an affidavit that these are not my accounts. Right. The credit agency has no choice but to remove it within four business days. Right. So that's the significant difference is they have no choice. It's mandatory to remove it in four days under the identity theft provision.
3: And, and it can only be, re- yeah, and it can only be reinserted if the creditor proves that it's not fraud.
2: Exactly. So, so guess what? Yeah. The things that come, all these disputes that come into the agencies, it's so convenient for them to route them into the 1681I realm where they get 30 days. Right. And they have to do an investigation. And they can always argue that, gee, it was reasonable. This is all the information we had, and it was reasonable to rely on the banks. So they put it into the part of the law that only requires that they act reasonably rather than the part of the law which is set up for identity theft, which requires that they actually delete the account.
3: Yeah, they have to block it. Right.
2: That's what people need to know. Right. And that's what the industry has to know after this case that they can't use this practice of sort of routing everything into this uh, ineffective system, and they have to be careful to take care of the stuff that's an identity theft so, rather than simply calling it a dispute.
3: Exactly. So so what happened with the jury? What, what was the result?
2: Well, the jury awarded Eric... for his emotional distress, and they awarded a large amount for punitive damages um, against Equifax.
3: And why do you think they awarded the, uh, why did the jury award the punitive damages, which is, you know, quite good that it happened. Why don't you tell my audience about that?
2: Well, I think the jury was disapproved of the central, um, point that the agency kept making where all of their key employee witnesses said the same thing that we can't trust the consumer they said that there's so much fraud out there from consumers and so many people falsely want to correct their credit reports to get ratings that they just can't afford to call the consumer and find out what's going on they have to rely on the banks only and
3: but how did they re- you know and but when you did you when you pointed out that the credit bureaus had a duty to block that information within 4 days as soon as they receive a police report and as soon as they receive the other documentation the driver's license and the thing how did how did they get around how did Equifax try and get around that
2: Well they they tried in about three or four or five different ways to argue that they didn't actually get that Strict technical compliance with that statute, and oh. then after they did, they said that they then said that they actually did block it. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we had these credit reports issued months later that showed that it was still on there. Wow! So uh, they 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 clearly didn't expect to be held to uh, the duty to uh, use uh, a reasonable amount of care in correcting records and that that's again goes back to what we're talking about this automated system and about the good work of experts like you in creating the identity theft laws and it all needs comes down to whether it can be enforced so we have a problem that the courts don't want to enforce this stuff and the congress doesn't want to give the courts and the lawyers the tools to do so And what's even a worse problem that I see is the impact of the preemption issues.
3: And let's talk about, for my audience to understand what you mean about preemption, because that is a very important issue.
2: Right. This was a big issue when the last administration came into power. And what happened was there were a lot of state laws that protected people from all sorts of
3: Especially California, where the three of us live. We are, we've are we had a lot of very good privacy and identity theft legislation, and m- much of it has been preempted by federal law.
2: Right. So we had these good California laws um, that could be enforced, and then they created a matching sort of federal law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And then the banking industry... Was able to convince the Congress that there should be a uniform set of laws, so that only the federal law should be applied, and that if there's a federal law, it should control over the state law. Um, and Congress did that.
3: And the so fraud- many of our state laws, like, like for example, if you put a fraud alert on your credit report, um, you know, you in California, you would have had a right to sue if they issued a credit if they issued credit, but not at the federal level. Yeah that's one example
2: so and it's the same you know the california laws are a little bit stronger across the board but most significantly in most areas the federal laws copied the state laws at least that's the way i read it but the problem is is the federal law took out the ability to enforce it right so both laws will say that the that the, Fs, that the credit agencies are required to investigate and that the banks are required to investigate. But under the state law, you could sue them when they didn't. Right. But under the federal law, only the attorney general can sue them. Right. So by taking away the ability of the individual consumer to remedy the problem, you rely on the government agencies to do all the consumer
3: protection. And and when the government agencies do the consumer protection or the Federal Trade Commission does the consumer protection, then individuals who have been hurt like Eric don't get anything out of it. Nothing. Right. So, yeah, let me let me just introduce you guys again because you've you're just both really wonderful. If you've just tuned in and you've been listening to this, we're speaking with John Keating who is a an attorney, he's a consumer lawyer in Woodside, California, and he was the uh, wonderful advocate for Eric Drew and Eric Drew himself is an inspiring individual. He's full of vim and vigor, even though he has been he has seen death right in front of him. He is a nationally recognized former identity theft victim and cancer survivor. He is a wonderful motivational speaker and he's chairman of a medical foundation helping all sorts of victims, whether they be victims of identity theft or victims of some medical. Uh, problem. And uh, so we're speaking with them right now. Let me ask you, uh, Eric, what was it like to be on the witness stand there?
0: Well, it was, um, it was uh, well, <laughs> um, life-changing, that's for sure. It was, uh, it was pretty, very brutal. Um, you know, they, they basically, the, the credit reporting industry, Equifax, specifically blamed me uh... and said that this whole thing was my fault that i didn't do what was required of me that uh... i mean i had you know fbi reports sent to them back in early two thousand four i had made you know tens of phone calls i had um, you know, I mean, I had done – I had made disputes through the process. I had done everything. And, and here they were basically – you know, I was sitting in the hospital minding my own business, and all this stuff, you know, basically happened, you know, between the banks and the credit reporting agencies. And then they were turning around blaming, you know, the bank. What the industry does is blame the consumer right. and then blame the bank. Right. So they say, well, it's the bank's fault because they reported this stuff to us. And then it's the consumer's fault because they didn't dispute it via our our process the right way or the way that we wanted you to do it. And uh, the jury just didn't buy it. Um, I mean, they tried to tear my whole life apart. And uh, even going back to to things that had happened earlier in my life and, and uh, you know, my relationships and everything else. But, you know, again, the jury just didn't buy it.
3: Yeah. And I think, first of all, you're such a sincere, honest really wonderful person that I'm sure they saw through this. And,
0: I, and yeah, and I'm, I think, uh, yeah, they they sure did. It was one of the one of the largest awards in an FCRA case and 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 it really is a a major victory for the American consumer.
3: It must have been hard though to go through the cross examination that they tried to give you and and the depositions. That must have been really a challenge for you. No,
0: yeah, it was, Mari, but you know knowing that 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 I'm in the right, knowing that that this cause is a, is a just cause that these people are out to basically automate everything, get it to the point where they have absolutely no employees whatsoever and they just have a computer that processes information and then, and then the executives make billions of dollars. You know, this is just not right. It's not right that we have private corporations in this country that keep secret files on us. That I mean, everything we buy, every, every account balance we have, everything, you know, just so that the banking industry can belligerently uh, offer, offer free immediate credit. Yes. and and it it's it's not benefiting the american uh it's not benefiting the american economy in the long run it's not benefiting the american public and it's time that we that we address these companies and their right to exist
3: and you know now we're seeing less credit being offered we're see- in, in terms of trends of what I'm seeing with identity theft victims, it's less with the credit cards and it's more with bank fraud, which is even worse. If somebody gets your debit card number right. and then the money is siphoned out of your account immediately and then you have to try and get that back. That's yeah. what I'm seeing is the real problems or check fraud, where people are creating checks in your name by just taking the account number and the routing number. So we're seeing more of the bank fraud, which is getting instant cash for these people and you can't find them. And then the poor consumer victim has to, again, prove that he's innocent rather than being innocent and proven guilty, just like you were talking about before. But let me ask you, so what um, what happened with the banks that actually were the culprits in issuing the credit without verifying, you know, the authenticness of uh, authenticity of of your uh, thief?
0: John, that's a question for you. Yeah.
3: Why don't you talk about the statute of limitations?
2: Well, it's an important issue for consumers to know about because the law is changing uh, rapidly on it. Um, Basically, the banks held that the federal law, the banks argued that the federal law controls over the state law and preempted, this is what we were talking about before, preempted the state law so that, you couldn't sue the banks under the state law for the violations of the California Consumer Protection Laws. Mm -hmm. Then they argued also that any lawsuit had to be brought within two years. Now, the statute says that it's five years, but it's two years after the consumer discovers the actual violation.
3: Right. And so the reason it might be five years is because sometimes a consumer won't find out for for a couple years right. about and, and it's been going on. So that.
0: Yeah, that, right. I mean, I, I knew that there was credit issued, but did I know that they were in violation of the law? Of course not.
3: No. So,
2: so the banks came in and developed all sorts of arguments, not that Eric actually knew of the violations, but that he should be construed.
3: uh, Yeah, he should have known. He should have known.
0: Yeah, even though I was dying in a hospital, I should have known that (laughs) that there's this thing called the Fair Credit Reporting Act and that they violated Section 1681, et cetera, et cetera. You know, know, that's just absurd that they put that burden on the consumer. It
2: it is absurd. It is. So what's happened in our law is that in these sort of dual statute of limitation statutes where the the Congress said it's a five-year statute of limitations, Two years after they know of the violation, mm-hmm. the law has evolved to a bunch of judicial opinions that construe there to be a discovery triggering the statute of limitation period as soon as the person has just about any opportunity to know that there's a problem. And what the, the Supreme Court just changed that in a case called Merck v. Reynolds. They came down maybe three, four months ago, late spring, and in that case, dealing with the securities laws, the Supreme Court said, nope, a person isn't construed to have discovered the violation at the time they have some kind of notice of a storm out there or notice that there's something wrong, but they're only construed to have discovered it after they would have discovered it if they started an investigation at that point. So if you start seeing storm clouds, you are supposed to look, look for problems. Mm-hmm.
1: And then you
2: have a reasonable period of time to actually discover the problems. And the court looks at whether you would, in fact, have discovered it rather than just that there is any possible notice.
3: So it, how, do, how do we relate that to... Um, to when you are a victim of identity theft. So when you first start getting phone calls from companies saying, how come you haven't paid your bill and you think, well, maybe this is a phony phone call or maybe it's a mistake, like, you know, Eric thought maybe there was some billing error or something was wrong, What what is the, the turning point that starts that statute of limitations?
2: Here's an example. Let's go to Eric's case. In Eric's case, the first card was issued by Citibank. right had applied to Citibank for with an application in Eric's name and had changed the address to the new address Actually,
0: it was just a phone call, wasn't it?
2: And
3: Yeah, could it, it, However, he applied. what happened
2: is Citibank's computers did exactly what you were saying they should do. They had a red flag. And it said new address doesn't match credit report and it bumped the application out. But Citibank then went back and churned its computers and kept looking for ways in which they could say that it did match.
3: Oh, goodness.
2: And eventually what they found, you'll love this one, is they found that the fraudulent phone number given on the fake application belonged to someone whose address was the same as the fraudulent address.
3: (laughs) So, so that's said, what they that they called a match. So
2: they said there's a match. The phone number of the application matches this no. hey, phone you, number, it, the
0: phone number of the criminal matches the address yeah, of the criminal. Let's get yeah. you the card. Oh.
2: So
1: then they
3: Instead that. of matching and, and for those who are listening, you have to understand that whenever you apply for credit I just want to clarify this for my audience. Whenever you apply for any kind of credit, you know that you give your social security number and then they pull your credit report. So on your credit report, it's going to have your real address. It's going to have your phone number. It's going to have your birth date. It's going to have all sorts of things on there on the credit header information. So that's what they should be comparing is does the application with all that information about date of birth, social security number, address, does that match what's already on the credit report? And when they when the Citibank pulled Eric's, it didn't match. But then they went ahead and matched that the phone number matched the address <laughs> which so, had nothing to do with the credit report, right?
2: Exactly. So then the Eric doesn't know how that process happened. He doesn't know what Citibank reported.
3: And he's he trying know to fight what was
2: on his credit report.
3: All he knows yeah.
2: is much later he knows that there's an identity theft and even later he knows that Citibank, a Citibank card was issued. He doesn't know if it was the first card or the only card or right. how the whole process went. We didn't know about this process until near the end of the litigation.
0: We could not have discovered this until even 2010, some of the violations and how this credit was issued. So for the, for the judgment of the court to say that that these banks should be let go because of the statute of limitations that Eric should have known about this, known about the negligent process of the banks, and should have filed a federal lawsuit with all the resources and everything else that it takes to do that by within one year after he got out of the hospital. I mean, by the, because you know, from, they're basically saying that from the beginning of 2004, I knew that these credit cards had been issued. I, from that point, the two-year statute of limitations runs, and therefore, by the beginning of 2006, I should have filed this lawsuit. That is absolutely absurd, and uh, uh, we will definitely go on and challenge that and uh, do everything possible to bring the three banks back into this case. That includes Bank of America, who is the primary – I mean, the, the primary – uh, you know, criminal here with, who, who issued, who kept the account open for for eight months during 2004, and then reported that account past due, ninety days past due, until the end of of, of 2006. So, um,
3: and then Citibank is that one of the other ones that you're going to go So you know,
0: Citibank was the was one. Chase is the other, and Bank of America is the is the the main one. So, and, uh, and people yeah, need to we, know we will that be definitely appealing to bring those banks back into the case.
3: Yeah, and Eric, people need to understand that that was a legal issue rather than an issue before the jury, because the the court itself would determine whether or not the statute of limits statute of limitations had run. Not so that would be a a an appeal, but that is not. From the jury, the jury awarded you the damages and the punitive damages, but the jury didn't have the right to say whether um, the statute of limitations had run. Right, we
0: never that that issue was never brought before a jury. Right, Uh, they can't,
3: and it so the battle goes on.
0: Yeah, so the battle goes on. I mean, you know, we 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 had a milestone victory with the award in that case, um, and uh, you know, but but. Again, it's just a it's it's a battle victory. It's not a it's not the victory of the war yet. So,
3: well, you had this incredible adventure, which was very challenging for you. It was uh, it was heartbreaking at many many times. Very scary that you almost died, and then of course the miracles that happened and how you came back and what you've done and you are just you know such an inspiration, Eric. So. So, what about the story? Is it going to be told in a book or a movie? Yes, what, no, what are you the book, doing?,
0: uh, I've, I've already, the title is It's all good. ALL was the name of my disease. And um, uh, I'm you know in the process of of going through and and, and refining some of the some of the words. And I, I think what, what's really important here is all the messages that are that are in this story, as opposed to just telling the story right. uh, is to really focus on you know what 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 messages are in there that that all of us can pull from. And hopefully grow from without having to go through those experiences. And, and I think that um, you know, uh, sometime in 2011, you're going to see this book on the shelf.
3: How about a movie?
0: And I would love to see a movie made about it too. I think uh, you could yeah, actually I think it star has all the in drama it. Drama of everything. It's got uh, you know uh, just about every aspect of a great movie in it. I so I, I have talked to a few producers and and, and uh, ab- about that, but um, you know, I'll let you know how things progress.
3: Well I think the greatest thing is the inspiration that you are for so many people and if you'd if you had to say what lessons you learned in life cuz there were lots and lots of lessons I mean what are what's one or two lessons that you learned in life Well
0: I think the the, the biggest lesson here is that um that that if you stay focused on on the outcome if you stay fo- if you know that your cause and that your goals are just and that they're not just for the benefit of you financially or anything else but that they serve a higher purpose that 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 you know um, that that, that there's a a a reason uh... for what you're doing and why you have these goals it's not just you know stay focused on the goal but why do you have it and, and what purpose does that goal serve and is it about you is it about your ego or is it about the greater good for society and humanity and and, and for the for the cause of good and justice, you know, right. and uh, and if you stay focused on that, and and really stay in tune with that, that you can accomplish anything. I mean, you can, you know, do you want to be wealthy? That's great, but why? Yes. What do you want to accomplish with your wealth? And be really in tune with the purpose of that. Anything can be done. Anything yeah. can be done. You can overcome any obstacle. And
3: because- you know, I I think Eric, when I think of you and and people who are like you that are such. Uh, wonderful inspirations for so many of us. I think about the the saying they say, God gives you, never gives you more than you can handle. So, I know that God thinks that you can handle a whole heck of a yeah, lot.
0: Yeah, I might debate that with him. But, uh,
3: <laughs> I know. I know. Anyway. I, I've said that in my life, too, but I know that that's true. And I'm so glad you're in my life. And I want to thank you so much. And I want to yeah. thank John. We lost him, but John Keating as well, your attorney, done a great job. And, Eric, you're continuing to do wonderful work in this world. And we will have you back again. So thank you for joining us. And we'll see you soon.
0: Okay. okay, bye-bye. bye-bye.
3: Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week on Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here in KUCI. FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Also, please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and most of all, we would love to hear from you. Write us emails about what's important to you and privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of
0: KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.